Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, friends. Thanks for joining our podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Well, hello there. It is the Bill Press Show. Here we are on Wednesday. My God, it's the last day of February already? Unbelievable. It is unbelievable. I know. It's not even a leap year, so we don't get an extra day. Leap years, by the way, I am here for. I love a, I love a good leap year. Was it last year leap year? I don't know. I think, I think last year was a leap year. No leap year this year. You're right. So we're done with February uh, as of tomorrow. But here we are on the last day of February, February 28th, and uh, look look who it is. Look who it is. It's me, your old pal Peter. Sitting in for Bill again. I, I swear Bill was here like five minutes ago. He was here. He came in. Yet again, he had... Uh, he was using sign language this morning <laughs> to communicate to, that his to, voice had not improved. He attempted to tell us that he wasn't, uh, that his voice wasn't doing much better by using sign language. Mm-hmm. Um for a radio podcast version of the show, that probably wouldn't go very well. No, not too well. Um, unless everyone were to go to our YouTube channel, which can be found at www.youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Ray, you're a natural already at this. <laughs> look at look at this already. Okay, but look, we actually are so close to reaching 11,000 subscribers. We're less than 100 away from it. So if everyone could Folks. hit the subscribe button. Folks, we could do that today. We could easily do that. Can we not do that today? We could definitely. Here's the do thing, that though. Today. Here's the thing, and, and, and like we always tweet out the link to the day's show, and I appreciate everybody that clicks on it and watches it. That's really, really, really cool because you see it on Twitter or you get in the habit or whatever. And but like, if you subscribe, you get all the stuff that we put up there, and you get notified, and you get all the good content. And plus, it helps us out. And helps us out. It's free. Don't cost nothing. It's zero dollars. It, it don't friends. cost nothing. Yeah. So go there. Go take the just. It's it's not even much of an extra step. Just hit the button that says subscribe. That way you're signed up. You're part of the team. You get all the stuff that we put up there. Yeah. So look, as I said, uh, Bill is not here today. He tried to do the show, but we had to send him home just because he didn't sound so good. He didn't have much of a voice. So I am going to be doing the show today uh, again. On last minute's notice, uh, but we got <laughs> lots of stuff to talk about today. We've got Simone Pathé from Roll Call uh, to talk about some of the races around the country and 
What is the fate of little Bob Corker? Is he going to run? Is he not going to run? We thought he wasn't going to. Then maybe he was. But I think Simone has the final story on uh, the legacy of Bob Corker. Also, in the second hour of the program, for the hour, our buddy Evan McMorris-Santoro is going to be coming in to uh, sit in for the hour. We'll be joined by Emily Atkins, science and environmental politics reporter for the New Republic. Uh, Just to pick up on something that we talked about yesterday around this time, Teachers in West Virginia are back to work. The strike is over. Their governor, Jim Justice, came forward and said that they are going to uh, give them a raise. In fact, we have a clip from Jim Justice, uh, the last clip that we played where he says what it's going to look like, what these teachers are going to get. They they wanted a raise. They're going to get a raise. Teachers and all the educators are going to get a 5% raise in the first year. And everyone else is going to get a 3% raise across the board first year. All right. So we talked yesterday how West Virginia, out of the 50 states, they were 48th in what they pay their teachers. 5% raise should put them up to like 44. Maybe. Maybe 45, 44. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, maybe the 5% increase, maybe the 5% raise will be just enough for them to buy a new gun whenever we start arming just teachers. Just enough to bump them into the next tax bracket. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So maybe a $1.50 increase. A $1.50 increase, yeah. yeah. They could get a Costco membership. Hey, mm-hmm. come on. What are we giving them grief for? They could, get a, they could get a Costco membership. Do they sell guns at Costco? I bet they don't. Anyway, folks, uh, stick around. Stick with us. We're going to jump right into the big part of the show here in just a moment. Uh, We're going to take a very, very quick break, and then we're going to come back and tell you the latest in the ballad of Jared Kushner. Oh, gosh, am I excited to talk about this. Stay tuned. It's the Bill Press Show. is the Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. Here we are on a February 28th on the Bill Press Show. My name is Peter Ogburn sitting in for Bill today who still has no voice. Poor guy came in and thought he was going to try and do the show today, but we sort of made an executive decision. He should just go home and rest his voice. So you have me today and I will try and carry Mr. Press's voice for him. And gosh, we have a lot to talk about. First of all, don't forget, folks, we have our podcast uh, up on iTunes and anywhere else that you get your podcast. It's the Bill Press Show. Just go search for it. Uh, and we put it up pretty much right after the show. So if you want, if you missed the show or you want to go back and hear something, uh, some of our, frankly, revelatory insights that we make during the program. I mean, gosh, you can't catch them all in the first first go-round. I mean, it's two hours of it, It's too. two hours. I mean, we don't waste a move here. Everything is gold. And by the way, if you're listening to us on uh, WCPT in Chicago or on Indiana Talks or uh, you're streaming it on on, um, TuneIn or iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening to the show, if you just listen to us terrestrially, you can't hear the whole show. We do a little preview, a little pre-show stuff uh, that's only in the podcast. So go check that out. Just download the podcast, subscribe. It sends right to your iPhone or Android or whatever it is that you use. I got to tell you. So easy. So, so easy. Well, uh, gosh, it's so hard to figure out where to begin on news days like this, right? Because there's just, there's a ton of things that happened yesterday. I mean, fairly momentous things. 
Uh, you had Hope Hicks, who appeared in, for, in front of the uh, House Intelligence Committee in a closed-door session and apparently didn't have much to say. She invoked her executive privilege. She said that, or Adam Schiff said that she talked about things during the campaign and during the transition, but once Donald Trump took the oath of office, that was it. They would, she wouldn't talk about anything else and invoked her executive privilege, which we're going to get to a point here very soon where we're going to find out just how ironclad that executive privilege really is. We're going to find out whether or not the White House can actually hide behind that when it comes to their aides, right? Steve Bannon did this. Hope Hicks is now doing it. I'm not so sure that that's going to hold up. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no. I, I really feel strongly that this is all going to break down for them very soon. And gosh, won't that be just a crying shame? I will hate that. Uh, meanwhile, today is the day that Billy Graham uh, lies in state here at the Capitol Rotunda. Here's a very interesting story. Very, very interesting story. The last time that a private citizen lay in state here in Washington, D.C. in the United States Capitol was Rosa Parks. We talked about that, Rosa Parks. Before that, it was Ronald Reagan. Now, the big thing around town is Congress is not going to be doing any work because, oh, we can't do any work because we have the Reverend Dr. Billy Graham lying in state. We can't do, we couldn't possibly do any work when we have someone lying in state. That's not something we can do. We can't actually go and have session and get things done and work and you know, we got to have some sort of honor. You would think someone was always lying in the Capitol. Yeah, right, you would think so, right. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing though. They continued their work when Rosa Parks laid in state. They continued their work when Ronald Reagan laid in state. Because they have important things to do, Peter. That's right. That's right. You know why they're shutting down work? Why? While Billy Graham is laying in state? So that they don't have to do a damn thing on gun control. They don't have to answer any questions. They don't have to go do any work on it. They don't have to figure out what the hell they're going to do to hold back this this onslaught of, uh, uh, of action that Americans are taking, they don't have to do anything. Because how could they possibly do any work when they got Billy Graham laying in state? Here's the thing. This is not going to blow over in three days. No, it's not. It's not going to. So even if they run away for the rest of the week, these kids are still going to be online. Still going to be there. These companies are still going to be cutting ties with the NRA because the public is now demanding it. Yeah. It's not going to go away. It really is not going to go away. And I mean, look. Uh, this whole idea that they can that they can escape it temporarily, cute, really cute. Okay, like we see it, we see what you're doing, but it it's just not going to work. It's going to completely backfire on 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 them. I completely agree. If anything, I think that it will make people even angrier and even more like ready to pounce as soon as they're back. Yeah. By the way, I should I should apologize. I didn't introduce you. That, of course, is Ray Rogers running the board this hello, morning. Hello, 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 Ray. You running... usually see the back of my head if you watch the screen. <laughs> that's right. That's right. If you're watching, you see you're, you're normally in the other chair. But again, this is one of those mornings where we all had to swoop into action. And, and We're I, in the upside down. I didn't know you were in the upside down. I didn't know I was going to host. You didn't know you were going to run the board. And I here didn't. we are. 
Paul Ryan's a demogorgon. <laughs> and so is Wait, Mitch McConnell. What is that a reference to? That's a reference to the to Stranger Things. Is that right? Yeah. Is that the whole thing? I don't watch that show, Ray. Okay, well, I mean, just taking at face reference. value, Stranger Things is an adequate title for the past year. There you go. That's 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 pretty spot on. That's pretty spot on. I tried to watch Stranger Things, but I can tell you, I, I think I've just settled on the fact that I don't like child actors. I just, I don't like child actors. Really? Those yeah. kid actors are so good, though. Not for me. Okay. Not for me. I thought I was going to love It. I went and watched It the uh, in the movie theater. Uh-huh. Hated it. Hmm. I, so, who cares about these kids? I don't care. Do you only like them when they're like 18 and older? Or like what's the age where they're no longer child actors? I can't think of a child actor that I saw and I was like, oh, wow, what a great and gripping performance that that child actor did. Peter. Shirley Temple. <laughs> <laughs> Ray, I'm not that old. <laughs> God. <laughs> anyway, uh, God, I want to jump right into the uh, to the Jared Kushner story because cue the world's tiniest violin. I'm going to read this headline from Politico. Jared Kushner loses access to top secret intelligence. No. Poor Jared Kushner. Oh. The fancy lad himself no longer has a uh, top secret intelligence clearance. And gosh, don't I feel bad about that. I just, you know, there's a lot going on here, right? I'll sort of try and peel this, peel the layers of this onion, right? But let's start with the fact that Jared Kushner never should have had a security clearance. If he can't get one now over a year after Donald Trump has been president, why the hell did he have one for this whole time? Richard Blumenthal, uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal, sort of talked about this a little bit yesterday. He was asked about these these sort of temporary clearances that the White House has, the White House has been very um, generous with handing out and he says, this is, this is a problem, and here is why. My main concern right now is that there are an unknown number of high-level White House officials with continued access to the nation's secrets when they may have very damaging secrets in their own backgrounds that could subject them to blackmail or worse. Okay, now a lot of Republicans and conservatives yesterday came out and said that Blumenthal— no, this this was earlier in the day yesterday. A lot of Republicans and conservatives came out and said, no, 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 that's not possible. That wouldn't be possible. Look, the White House still has a security wall around it. Uh, when you work in there, this isn't going to be a thing. Well, fast forward to the Washington Post putting out a story saying that not only could Jared Kushner be targeted by outside forces, he has been. Four different foreign powers have looked at Jared Kushner and uh, his business ties. They've looked at the fact that he has, I think it would be an understatement to say that he has some troubled financial dealings, certainly shady financial dealings. He's racked with debt, um, which, which like, look, a lot of business people do, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to necessarily call him out on that, but... The point is, when you have these problems and you also have a top secret security clearance in the White House. And you are also married to the president's daughter. Yeah. There, therein lies some conflict. There may be a chance yeah. 
We've got we've that got, you could be subjected we've, to. Blackout. We've got a recipe for some serious conflict mm-hmm. brewing. So four countries have looked at Jared Kushner and looked at his at his problems, uh, his financial issues, his lack of governmental experience, and also the fact that, as you said, his political influence is is very very valuable. So uh, the United Arab Emirates. Mexico, Israel, and China have all looked at his problems and said, like, we could maybe exploit that for our own personal gain. Those are just the ones that we know Those are the ones we know about. Of. That's absolutely right. It's really frightening to think also because this problem extends beyond Kushner when you look at Ivanka herself. That's the thing. Donald Trump himself. It's Exactly as Blumenthal said, multiple people suffering from the same ills. Right. Like we have numerous members of the White House who have these temporary security uh, clearances, right? Multiple. And some of them are, they're they're like figuring it out now, which great timing. A year, over a year after you've been in the office, now's a great time to figure it out. Great time. Great time. Uh, But put all that aside. Put all that aside, Donald Trump himself has a problem. Like, Donald Trump is the one who could easily be manipulated, easily be screwed around with. And that leads to another part of the story I wanted to mention. We learned yesterday that Robert Mueller is not, I mean, look, he's got a lot on his plate, right? But it's not so much about the collusion. It's not so much about the treason. It's not so much about any of that as it is about Donald Trump and his business dealings. And people who know Donald Trump and have known him for a long time, I've, I've said this before, right? Like the D.C. media, I don't think has still really figured out how to report on Donald Trump because it is a weird thing, right, that he is actually the president of the United States, which I still like look at the TV and just go, God, I can't believe we're still I think here. they should take a hint from the kids. They should take a hint from the kids. They should absolutely take a hint from the kids. This is how we should be covering Donald Trump. And the people who really know Donald Trump best are the people who cover not D.C. media and politics, but those who cover New York media. Because Donald Trump is purely a creation of the New York media. And he understood early on there is no such thing as bad press. He just wants to get his name in the papers, and that's it. Right? That's it. And so you go back to... His real estate holdings, his financial holdings, and all these problems that he's had over the years. And, yeah, it's finally going to catch up with him now that he's in the White House. Like, that's what Robert Mueller is looking at. Donald Trump knows how to move money around. Like, we know that about him. So... What's going to finally get Donald Trump? Not his utter stupidity on... You know the people that he surrounded himself with, but all, but it really could just be his business dealings, and that's what Robert Mueller is going to take a look at: his business dealings with Russia, his moving money around in shady ways, which we know he has a history of. It's it's just it's just going to get shadier and shadier. I don't know when the the Mueller bomb is going to finally drop. Could take some time, probably will, but that's okay. It's not like irreparable damage is being done to the country. In the meantime, oh, wait. (laughs) It absolutely is.
It's so dark. We live in dark times. We live in hell. We live in hell. Every single morning I wake up and I go, well, here we are, another day in hell. <laughs> Every day. Every day. It's unbelievable, Ray. It is unbelievable. You know, something I wanted to talk about that we have speculated um, is that Donald Trump is going to run in 2020 because, of course, Donald Trump is going to run. Of course he's going to run in 2020. I love I mean, look, I don't I, I, I understand that we're living in a period of time where politics doesn't make any sense anymore. Right. Like there again, there are people who've covered politics their whole lives. And there is it's sort of a script to how some of this stuff goes. Script is out the window. Out the window. But I do have a question. Do yes. you think that the next presidential election will essentially be a replay of 2016? Will the media give Donald Trump unlimited coverage, free advertising, a gazillion town halls? Do you think that we'll make the same mistake again? Yes. I think so, too. 100%. Again, we live in hell. But I, I will say this. I used to be of the mind that... Donald Trump's going to be a president for eight years. He's going to be a two-term president, full stop, and that's it. And I've kind of wavered on that a little bit. I mean, obviously, this depends on a lot of different factors, right? Like what the Democrats end up doing and who they elect uh, or who they nominate, I should say. But I just think that, like, there were a lot of people who assumed that Donald Trump would become more presidential, and he didn't. Which is a ridiculous assumption. I'm sorry. If you if you had that argument, there's some kind of dissonance in your thought pattern. Like- I agree. I agree with that. Here's what, here's what I would say. Here's what I would say. Uh, I'm not one of these people that says like, oh, we should reach out to Trump voters and figure out how they think. But like, I just happen to know a lot of Trump right. voters. I have a lot of Trump voters in my life. In my life, for better or worse. Hi, mom. Hi, dad. Oh, hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. Listen, they're not watching. Not my mom and dad. They're not watching. But I, I I, understand part of why they would have voted for Donald Trump, right? Like, I, sure. I, I understand that. And I even said, I was, I was way out ahead of the game. I said on air, I said, Donald Trump's going to be the Republican nominee. Yep. Admit- I called it when he gave that very first yep. speech. Yeah. Admi- I said he was going to be the president. Admittedly, admittedly, I didn't think he was going to win the presidency. I really didn't. I did. But I wasn't completely shocked and stunned when he did. And so I understand why you might have thought, okay, this guy is playing a character. He's got to get these people riled up. He's got to get these votes. And then when he gets into office, he's a businessman. He knows how to run things. He'll tighten up. And here we are, and it's, it just clearly hasn't happened. And I think a lot of those people, one of my friends who's a farmer said, I'm voting for Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton hasn't told me anything that that I can use. She hasn't spoken to me at all, and Donald Trump has. And that, I mean, look, I, I, we, I don't want to debate this too, too much, but like when we talk about Donald Trump, and the way he ran his campaign, when he spoke at the Republican National Convention, I looked at him and I just go, wow, he's giving them something to vote for. Yes. He's giving them ideas and he's saying, I will do this. And they are concrete ideas and people will go vote for them. Now, understanding who he is, none of those have happened. But we didn't get a lot of that out of our nominee if you're a Democrat. You know, we didn't. And I'm not here for Hillary bashing or whatever. And I'm not Neither here to relive the 2016 election. Neither am I. But I will say one thing that Hillary Clinton did try to make as 
you know, a strong point about was guns. Yeah. She was taking a stance on guns back in 2016. Yeah. And I think that's something that's vastly underrated when we look back at her candidacy is that we say she had nothing that she stood for. There was nothing groundbreaking. But for me, that was groundbreaking because at that period in 2015 and 2016, not many politicians were speaking out against the NRA. No, it's true. And here we are now. We have this sort of moment where, uh, you know, guns are the issue. Uh, They've been the issue for a long time. We've just let politicians sweep it away. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but like, it hasn't been a priority for voters. Sure, it just hasn't. I mean, it it has come in waves. No, I agree. Right, and I think that we haven't sustained our our anger and demand for action for sure at all. And I think that it is something that has reached a critical mass now, as we talked about yesterday, yes. because. This is Generation Columbine. These kids that are graduating right now and who will be of age to vote in this next election, including the midterms, some of them, they were born in or around the year when Columbine happened. They don't know a time without the Internet. They don't know a time without mass shootings in schools. This is just what they know. And this is very very top of the mind for these kids and it's not going to go away the same way that it may for people you know your age or older because you didn't grow up with that it wasn't a constant source of fear by the way on that note a new Quinnipiac university national poll conducted after the mass shooting in parkland florida shows that 51 percent of voters say the nra supports policies that are bad for the united states bad for the united states now how, how has that progressed? Back in October, they did a similar poll that found that 47% thought that the NRA supported bad policies. That was the highest it had ever been at that time. So we are now, for the very first time, according to this Kanipiak poll, the majority of voters think that the NRA is bad for America. And this is like if you have a candidate that's going to go out there now and say, the NRA is bad, I'm anti-NRA, I'm anti-guns, I'm anti-certainly assault weapons. Mm-hmm. That's not a losing thing. It's not a losing thing. And that was a question that you posed yesterday as well. It was like, can politicians run now on an anti-NRA platform and still win? And I think yes. We can now. Yes. Three years ago, maybe not. No. In fact, definitely not. We saw what happened with Tom Perriello. Yep. Uh, just wasn't going to happen. Anyway, uh, one final thing I want to get into um, is is Hope Hicks, uh, because she did meet in front of the House Intelligence Committee. Adam Schiff continued to do his work there. Uh, he he met with Hope Hicks, and a couple of clips from him. The first one where he talks about how how she answered the questions, what she what she did. Initially, it was made clear to us uh, that the White House had given. Uh, Ms. Hicks, the same instructions that were given to Steve Bannon, uh, and that is not to answer any questions pertaining to the transition or to her time in the administration. And he he referenced Steve Bannon there. Let's hear more from uh, 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 Adam Schiff. This is a um, breathtakingly broad uh, claim of privilege that I don't think any court would sustain, uh, and I think the White House knows that. So that's what we were talking about earlier, right? Whether or not this could actually be a thing that they can hold up. And I think the answer is is pretty clearly no. Pretty clearly no. 
Um, ABC or NBC News had a report yesterday. Because uh, I'm not one of these people that that thinks that the Russians are solely to blame for the loss uh, in 2016 for Democrats. I think they certainly played a role, and I think their influence was certainly a thing. But I I also just think that like. Democrats could have run a better campaign. Agree. And also, let's not downplay the fact that America has a huge problem with race. And this largely was a reactionary campaign to Obama. Yes. Our first African-American president. Yes. And yes. And so it turns out, according to NBC, seven different states had their roles, their voter roles, compromised by the Russians. Not, straight up and down, folks. Alaska, Arizona, California, Florida, Illinois, Texas, and Wisconsin. Three different senior intelligence officials told NBC News that uh, they believed that those states were compromised. Now, that's a lot. That's a lot. And that's a big deal. And, you know, the, the bigger issue is here we are. Over a year, a year and a half, or whatever, since the election, and nothing's been done. The president been won't done. even admit that he this won't even happened. Admit. He won't even admit. And so, like, we have the midterms coming up. We are still vulnerable. With multiple intelligence reports indicating that Russia is trying to pull the same thing yeah. and largely succeeding. Yeah. Because we are doing nothing about it. Yeah, it's just. I mean. <laughs> Well, obviously, we'll have to wait until November to see what's go- what's going to happen, right, and how this plays out. But the other interesting part about this is the Donald Trump war on the intelligence community, which he has made very, very public, and, and allegations of deep state and talks about what a sloppy job they've done and uh, that they're out to get him, even yesterday, tweeting, all caps, witch hunt. <laughs> Right, like this is all now coming back to bite him in the ass because the intelligence community, they know a lot more than he does. And and like he just hasn't informed himself by design. I would, I mean, he he just doesn't, it's not something he he, he prioritizes, but like they are going to come out and they're going to get this information out one way or the other. They've been trying to give it to the president. He just doesn't read his daily briefings. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. If it's not on Fox News, it's not reaching him. The U.S. intelligence community developed substantial evidence that state websites or voter registration systems in seven different states were compromised by Russian-backed covert operations prior to the 2016 elections, but they never told the states involved. Top secret intelligence, I'm reading directly from the NBC News report by Cynthia McFadden. Top secret intelligence requested by President Barack Obama in his last week's in office identified seven states where analysts synthesizing months of work had reason to believe that Russian operatives had compromised state websites or databases. So look, again, shame on Donald Trump for not doing anything, but also we have to look back and wonder how much differently this story could have played out if Barack Obama and his administration had actually come out and said something and done something about this. It's I, a huge question that I, will loom over I know. Obama's presidency forever. I know we as progressives and liberals hate to criticize Barack Obama, but like, looks like a miss to me. That looks like a bad job by Barack Obama.
Agree. All that being said, he's not the president anymore, and we have a president who could do something, and yet he does not. So I'm not laying it squarely at his feet, but also, like, come on. No, no, I don't think that any one person is to blame for this. I think that it's uh, multiple missteps by many people. Yeah. A systematic failure, if you will. So how are we looking in the midterms, which are coming up here this November? Well, we should get a report on that from Simone Pathé. She's senior politics reporter for Roll Call. She's going to be joining us in studio here in the next segment, so stay tuned for that. Uh, Not only an update on the uh, midterms, but we'll find out the fate of little Bob Corker. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Stay tuned. We'll have an update on that here in just a moment here on the Bill Press Show. My name is Peter Ogburn. Sitting in for Bill today. We'll be right back. Live video. Bill's commentary. The best clips from the show. All in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is The Bill Press Show. Hi, everybody. My name is Peter Ogburn. Sitting in for Bill Press. I I didn't know I was going to be hosting today either. I had no idea. I know a lot of you were surprised. Frankly, none of you were more surprised than I am. Uh, Bill came in this morning, had no voice, and uh, it's just kind of hard to do radio and TV when you don't have a voice, so uh, we we sprung into action. Uh, I'm sitting here. Luckily, I, I booked only the best guest who could come in and help me through the show. Uh, Simone Pathé from Roll Call is here, senior politics reporter. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. It's a pleasant surprise to see you in the anchor chair. It's a pleasant surprise for me, too. <laughs> I had no idea. But here we are. Um, gosh, we were just talking about the 2018 midterms. They're, they, I mean, they're going to be here before we know it, right? They're basically like, here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's the end of February, uh, which, God, that was fast. And before we know it, it's going to be full-on voting season. Um I, I want to ask you, first of all, you have a story about uh, Bob Corker, mm-hmm. because Bob Corker sort of famously, infamously said he wasn't going to run. Uh-huh. Then we started hearing rumblings that yeah, maybe he's having second thoughts about this. He might get back into the race. But according to you. He's not actually. He's not actually. Okay, yeah. He's yeah. officially not going to run. So this he's was out. a fun little song and dance that we went through for a couple weeks. Um, and you're right. He had come out last fall and said, hey, I don't want to be a long-term senator. I'm a citizen, legislator, whatever that means. So I'm getting out of here after two terms, um, which opened the doors immediately to Marsha Blackburn yeah. getting in the race. Um, she has been a super aggressive fundraiser. Um, you know, she's pretty conservative, well-known across the state, big Trump supporter. So she's got a lot going for her in a Republican state that supported Trump by a pretty wide margin. Um, But then when Corker started to backtrack his retirement announcement, you could see the Blackburn folks getting a little bit nervous. Uh, They went as far as to call um, the people who are trying to get Corker back into the race sexist pigs, you know, uh, angry old men, who somehow resented Blackburn or questioned her general election viability. There is an argument out there, you know, that she is way too conservative for a general election against a fairly conservative, moderate Democrat, of the former governor of Tennessee, that that could pose a problem for Republicans. Um, they push out a lot of polling showing that she would defeat Corker handily in the primary. So no one really knows what Corker's thinking was, although it's hard to see all the pu- public polling hard to see that he would have had a path to victory in the primary. Right. So that that's sort of, to me, the, that race is kind of fascinating because I think you're seeing more and more 
uh, Democrats feeling empowered in mm-hmm. states like Tennessee, right? Absolutely, yeah. And Marsha Blackburn is as conservative as conservative gets. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Donald Trump did very, very well in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. The Democratic candidate, the, the former governor, Phil... Phil Bredesen. Phil Bredesen. Phil Bredesen. Um, I've seen Democrats run former politicians, right? Like Evan Bayh, last go-round, Ted Strickland. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't work out so well. It often doesn't. Yeah. Right. So where... I mean... I know now it's a different time, right? Like sure. Democrats, like I said, they're feeling empowered. They're feeling emboldened. But like... What are the? How is it shaping up? I, let me let me put it that way. Yeah. How is it shaping up down there? So Democrats are very aware of I'll call it the, the Ted Strickland problem, right? Where you had a former politician who actually moved to D.C. He worked for the Center for American Progress and then went back to Ohio to run for Senate last year against Rob Portman. Not a good didn't look work out to so work well. Yeah, for a liberal think tank and then run for Senate. The argument that they're pushing now is that Bredesen didn't do that. He didn't yeah. move to D.C. He's been back there. He was a popular governor. You know, he theoretically has name ID. So they're very much clinging to the fact that he is still of Tennessee and he didn't become some sort of D.C. lobbyist. Yeah. Um, the way, you know, Evan Bayh, you could argue that he certainly did. Evan Bayh was doing what was best for Evan Bayh. Exactly. Um, <laughs> exactly. I think that's a fair point, though. I do. I really do think that's yeah, a fair point, you right? Can, like, you can if you say there's a difference. Yeah, if you're yeah. going to be a public servant to the state that you want to run right. in, I, I think that Evan Bayh and Ted Strickland did it the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. And so, I, yeah, I think there's something to be said that maybe Bredesen has a little bit of a better chance because of that. Um, he's a little bit older, so there's a question of, you know, what kind of excitement is he going to demand on right. the campaign trail? He's got a lot of money. Um, which never really hurts. Doesn't hurt. <laughs> Doesn't hurt. Uh, so that could help as well. Um, y- you're right. A lot of Democrats were energized after Alabama, of course. Yeah. Um, and most people recognize at their core that that was a very unique situation. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> but it hasn't stopped Democrats from thinking that tactically they can learn from that Senate race and maybe deploy some of the same strategy, the same messaging, the same turnout operation in some of these other Southern races. Yeah, I mean, I as someone who is from the South, I I obsess over this stuff, right? Because like there are some pockets of the South where Democrats just do well, mm-hmm. and you know it's a balancing act. Like you look at someone like Joe Manchin, who is essentially a Republican, <laughs> right? And then you look at there are other pockets of the South where there are out and out essentially socialists, right? Who do well. Yeah. Statewide is a different issue, but like sure. there are pockets where you could where you could do okay, and I just think the excitement that is uh, following Democratic candidates right now, mm-hmm. it, this could be a very unique midterm year. I mean, you not only do you have the wave, but that you also just have a lot of politicians finding their voice. So, what are there are there any other big like? Big ticket races in the South that we should be keeping our eyes on? So there's Texas, of course. Oh, yes. Most yes. people are still admitting for Democrats, but you can't ignore that Beto O'Rourke has been a really strong fundraiser. Um, you know, he's outraised Ted Cruz, I think, two non consecutive quarters at this point, which is fairly impressive. The last one, the last uh, quarter that I saw, I think he raised like a million and a half more than Ted yeah. Cruz. Yeah. Which is shocking. And hearing from people on the ground, um, former roll call reporter Abby Livingston has been oh, out yeah. in Texas sure. this past week covering primaries, and, and she's been talking about just the energy that she has seen on the ground that she hasn't seen before, whether it's for, for O'Rourke or just for 
congressional candidates in general. So the the same sort of enthusiasm that we're seeing around the country, I think, has also affected Texas. Whether that's enough in 2018, maybe not. I mean, I can't think of a more uh, prized scalp for Democrats to get their hands on than Ted Cruz. That would be huge for the That would be a big deal. It would be a major upset. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, and a lot of Republicans would be fine with it. A lot of Republican senators would have no problem with it either. they wouldn't mind saying goodbye. <laughs> um, but, but, like, it, the excitement factor. Yeah. The excitement yeah. factor. It's not just about money. It's about excitement. And I think there are a right. lot of people who maybe sat out the election mm-hmm. in 2016 mm-hmm. and just said, oh, God, what did I do? Yeah. And there are some other Southern races that are a little bit less um, – Major races, to your point, um, in your native South Carolina, for example, right? The Charleston race. Yes. There's a Democrat running there. Yeah. Um, he's raised some decent money. I think he said that he would not support Nancy Pelosi, like clearly staking out a position there that he thinks will get him further in a general election. Yeah. Um, there's the South Carolina five seed where Archie Parnell ran in a special election last year. And almost won. And almost won. And he's a like a essentially a Bernie Sanders type Democrat. Like he, he came out and was very yeah, strong. he's um he's got an interesting profile. He's a former former Goldman Sachs guy, which is sort of an odd fit for that district. Um, and I think had a little trouble connecting, especially with African American voters yeah. at the outset. But the, round two, you know, he could come out stronger. Um, you're right. He did come in all those special elections the closest to actually defeating a Republican. I think part of that was because it was such a a low profile race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was the same sure. day as Georgia six. Like people just didn't pay attention, and therefore Republican turnout was lower. Oh God, um, yeah. But that's not to negate at all that there is certainly enthusiasm behind him this year. So, um, you know, you mentioned something that I want to hit on for a second. Being against Nancy Pelosi, because mm. there are more and more Democrats who are saying, like, yes, I'm going to run, mm-hmm. and no, I don't support Nancy Pelosi. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of this came from, you just mentioned the Georgia 6 race, the John Ossoff race. Right. Uh, they really tried to make it about, this is another vote for Nancy Pelosi. Yes, right? yes. Um, what's the future of Nancy Pelosi and the party? And what sort of impact is she going to play in these upcoming midterms? Yeah, well, there is no question that Republicans are going to use her for all she's worth. I mean, at the beginning of the cycle, you had Congressional Leadership Fund, which is the major Republican super PAC on the House Republican side, committing to spending hundreds of millions of dollars using her. And you saw that in um, in Georgia. You're seeing that now in the special election in Pennsylvania's 18th district, which it's not necessarily a great chance for Democrats, just given the fundamentals of the district. But yeah. Republicans are clearly worried. They're sure. spending money there. And the constant attack is tying Connor Lamb, the Democratic nominee, to Nancy Pelosi. Lamb even came out earlier this week with an <laughs> ad of his own saying, hey, wait, I said I'm not going to support her. Not a fan. (laughs) Not a fan. It's just remarkable to me that Democrats are having to come out and say, like, we're we're not such a a big fan of of," essentially like the the leader of the party in the House. Yeah. There's a recognition, I think, among candidates, maybe for one of the first times at sort of the national level across the board, that she is pretty toxic when it comes to electoral politics. Yes, she raises a lot of money, and that is great for these candidates to the extent it trickles down to them. You can argue... You know, her merits as a legislator and a negotiator, that's all great. But when it comes to elections, when voters are just seeing two candidates and two messages and they're being tied to this wealthy woman from San Francisco, that's kind of a drag in South Carolina. Totally. No, I mean, look, I get it. And and 
I'm pretty quick to defend Nancy Pelosi and the work that she's Mm -hmm. done. I think that what we now know as Obamacare probably should be called Pelosi Care because she (laughs) had a bigger hand in getting it done than literally anybody else. She made it happen. Yeah. All that being said, it might be time to just like step aside, let some new blood in, and lead the party. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 like look, that's that's not because she's done a bad job. It's just kind of like you've been there long enough. People don't like Congress. Um it might just be time. Yeah, and there's been a lot be of members of the caucus calling for that, even um, you know, after the twenty sixteen elections. If you remember, you saw that sort of core group of rebel rousers in the House, some of the younger members, the Tim Ryans of the world, the Seth Moltons saying like, Hey, we need new leadership if we're gonna uh, if we're going to succeed electorally, and it wasn't at all about her leadership in the House that they were contesting. Right. I mean, her her success or not, it was really about um, just sort of the face of the party electorally going forward. Uh, I want to ask you about your piece that you have up at RollCall.com, RollCall.com. By the way, you can follow uh, Simone on Twitter at SFPathe, P-A-T-H-E, uh, and read her good work at RollCall.com. Wealth of Congress, 14 vulnerable incumbents are at least worth one million dollars. You've got a whole list of the ones that are here. Uh, Some familiar names here, if you pay attention to this show. Claire McCaskill, for sure. Joe Manchin. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Josh Gottheimer. Mm -hmm. We talked about the money factor, right? Like, how is that going to to play? You you point out that only one of them has spent money on their own campaign. Yeah. Um, So it's not like they're funding or self-funding or anything like that, but like... When you look, I'm trying to figure out how to put this delicately, <laughs> but like when you look at where we are right, uh, with politics, right? Like I think that a lot of people are buying into the stereotype of the fat cat politician who's gotten high on the hog while being in office. Mm-hmm. And you could point to these people and say like, well, yeah, they are. They made a lot of money. How is that going to play a factor in their um Re-election bids. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I would encourage folks to go to Roll Call, a little plug here, and check out the entire index of the wealth of Congress. Rollcall.com, um, folks. Rollcall.com. Check it out. Uh, our fabulous researcher, Paul Fontello, crunched all of these numbers himself, one person. Uh, that's an enormous accomplishment. Wow. So... Shout out to Paul. Um, anyway, yeah. As someone who's as terrible at math as I am, that gave me <laughs> such anxiety to just hear those words come out of right? your mouth. Right, me too. I know. <laughs> um, and what's interesting, so the way that we did our um, vulnerable list here is we looked at all of the members who are in seats that are like toss-up or likely Republican, likely Democratic, according to Nathan Gonzalez's ratings. And we found all of those members on the list of all members of Congress who are worth over $1 million. So- mm. These folks are very rich, but they do not in any way necessarily represent how rich the rest of Congress is. If you go through that list, I mean, some of them are leaving, like Daryl Issa is always the most. He's always the most. He's always the richest, right? He's, <laughs> he's still leaving. the richest. He is the richest. Okay. But now you've got Gianforte in the mix, who I think is the second richest. Um, Freeling Heinz Even after all of there. his court fees? Even and after like... all those bills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he is up there. Um, so anyway, all of that is to say is that these people are rich, like someone like Colin Peter. And I think is the last person mm. on the list, um, which kind of surprised me. You know, he's a conservative Minnesota Democrat, um, never really run super aggressive campaigns up in the northern part of the state. Like, yeah. just he hasn't really faced much competition. And he's worth money, but like, 
not at all what <laughs> most of these really super wealthy members of Congress are. Right. Um, right. That being said, someone like McCaskill, who is the most vulnerable, wealthy member of Congress on our list, there's no question that Republicans are going to try to smear her as a D.C. insider with lots of money. I think lots of the money comes from her husband, for example. Um, so they're going to use that to create a certain narrative. And, and as you said, it's not necessarily about these people using their own money to buy their electoral seats, which, of course, has happened right. <laughs> in many places. You know, family member funds a super PAC or whatever. It's about the, the persona of the person. And if you have a bank account that is worth nine figures, it's a lot easier to create the narrative that this person is out for themselves. They don't represent you. Yeah. Okay, so uh, at the top of your list, Claire McCaskill, $26.9 million. Um, she's a little vulnerable. She is vulnerable. She's a little vulnerable. Yes, and if you recall, her past election, I don't want to say she got a free pass. She did I will. a good job, but... I will. She got a free pass. She was going to lose that race. It was a unique situation. She was going to lose that race. <laughs> and then we remember Todd Aiken uh, with the... Which, by the way... If Todd Aiken had made that statement in today's political climate, he'd probably be senator. Yeah. He'd yeah. probably be senator. Like, it wouldn't even wouldn't bad matter. Eye. Right. Yeah, it would be nothing. Like, that's... Oh, forget it. I'm not, not going <laughs> to dwell on the past. But, um, you know, there's a very... I mean, Missouri has a really, really interesting political climate going on right now. Not yeah. the, I mean, their governor, they, they essentially don't have a governor right now. Right. He is. He was arrested. Right. Uh, charged with a felony. Uh, for invasion of privacy because he tr he was sh uh, uh, sharing a photo of a woman he was having an affair with, a, a nude photo of a woman he was having an affair with. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, like, what sort of impact that would have on McCaskill's midterm race. I mean, look, I'm not... I'm not saying she's a lucky politician, but boy, the luck certainly doesn't doesn't hurt her. Yeah, and it's been interesting to watch on the Republican side. So uh, gearing up to this race, everyone thought it was going to be Claire McCaskill versus Ann Wagner, yeah. which would be really interesting because McCaskill had never faced a female opponent before, and that kind of takes some issues off the table, right? Fair, yeah. Um, but the party, for whatever reason, signaled to Wagner that they didn't actually want her to run, and so now they have the Attorney General, Josh Hawley, who has... Um, attracted some support from like the Bannon crowd and the Club for Growth, but also so-called establishment Republicans here in D.C. But he hasn't raised a lot of money. He hasn't been doing a lot of campaigning or active fundraising. Um, so some Republicans are concerned that maybe he might not live up to expectations. But he's a young face. Yeah. He's got support from many different corners of the Republican Party. Certainly a really tough challenger for McCaskill. Reminds me a lot of the governor. Young face, lots of uh, support from different uh, corners yes. of the party. Yeah. Yes. So you're going to see some attacks. I'm not writing I'm her ads. I'm, I'm just sure saying. I'm sure that's going to come up. And we already had what she would call a Todd Aiken moment. Um, if you recall, a couple of weeks ago, Holly came out that Holly had said something basically um, equating like this sexual liberation movement um, to, you know, I don't know. It was a weird, weirdly yeah. phrased. Yeah. So as we talk about uh, the midterms, uh, what what are the chances? What is it going to look like for a Democratic takeover of the House and the Senate? I think Claire McCaskill is a big key. Yeah. Uh, to keeping that seat, right. and and uh, I think there are, there there are a couple others that are going to be tough for Democrats. But yeah. Can they actually flip both? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. I think it's likely that they flip one or the other. I think, you know, just looking at the numbers, the chances are probably still a little bit better in the House. They have to pick up 24 seats 
which is a pretty tall order. Sure. <laughs> um, there are 23 Republicans sitting in House districts that Clinton won. So that's sort of your first tier of natural targets. And yeah. then some other people that they're hoping to catch asleep at the wheel. The Senate level, um, the numbers are pretty daunting. They have to keep all of those 10 seats Everything. that Donald Trump won, those states. That in itself is Huge. You're talking yeah. about McCaskill, Mansion, Heitkamp, Donnelly, people who are pretty conservative, but in pretty conservative states. Right, right, right. And then you have to pick up seats. Um, so that looks like it could be a Nevada, an Arizona, possibly a Tennessee or a Texas. But like for all of those things to go right, it creates sort of a perfect storm opportunity. And to my point that they're either going to pick up one or the other. If they do pick up one, they're sort of different narratives, right? Like if they're going to pick up the Senate, they have to play to this more conservative um, red state democratic mantra, whereas picking up the House sort of plays to a more liberal suburban narrative. So it depends how the party is able to structure its narrative in a lot of yeah. these states. Well, I mean, <laughs> the Democrats actually have to get it together and like work <laughs> on them. That that alone is the most daunting task. Um, yeah, I just it's a tall order. I think it is. Um, I, I think more likely they pick up the the House. They flip the House. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the House, Paul Ryan is up against a uh, a formidable opponent in Iron Stash. Yes, <laughs> Randy Bryce. He's been here. He sat right there. Uh, I have to tell you, the 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 mustache in person is just Ooh. as just as nice as you think it would oh, be. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, it's a very impressive stash. <laughs> I got to be honest. Is Paul Ryan have a does he have a, a shot of going down? I mean, could he actually lose this race? I think it's pretty tough to see him losing. Yeah. But, you know, even if it requires him to spend money, to spend a little extra time back home that he wouldn't spend around the country fundraising or or campaigning for other members, that's notable. Yeah. <laughs> I agree actually. Like I, I I think God, I would love to see I, I just I like Iron Stash a lot. <laughs> Mostly because I'd love to just say Congressman Iron Stash. Uh, but, you know, like, who knows these days, right? Like, who even knows? It could totally happen. Yeah, and he hasn't even said that he's running for re-election, which right. is, you know, could be an open question. He's got a pretty tough and not-so-fun job right now. So. There was a brief period of time not so long ago that we weren't sure if he was going to run at all. Mm -hmm. And is that gone? Are we, are we, do we feel like he's going to run? So I think what he said is that he always makes the decision sometime later in the spring after a conversation with his family. <laughs> Seems to be cutting a little close. It's a little close. Right? It's a little close. Okay. Um, Democrats are really banking on him just as sort of a, a boogeyman, the same way that Republicans are excited about Pelosi. And Fair. they have polling that in a lot of these House districts that they're contesting, Ryan is actually more unpopular than Donald Trump. So I think you're going to see in some districts, Democrats aren't going to talk about Trump at all. It's going to be about right. Ryan. Ryan, 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 Ryan. Boy, that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I want to ask you about, this is sort of a curveball, but yesterday we learned that Donald Trump has picked his campaign manager for 2020. <laughs> so for those of you who are watching and listening who thought that, oh, he was just going to do one term and get out, doesn't look like that's going to happen. He has picked uh, a man by the name of Brad Parscale. What do we know about him? We've only got about a minute left, but do we know what do we know I about him? I honestly don't know a whole lot. I don't know much about him at all. I don't know much about him at all. But like the fact that Donald Trump is signaling now that mm -hmm. he's going to run, I think is is news. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, you can't ignore the fact that 2018 will impact 2020. If if Democrats pick up a huge number of seats and get in power and try to pass a lot of progressive agenda, um, 
2020 could conceivably be yeah. harder, right? Because yeah. there's a backlash factor. If they don't pick up seats, Trump is maybe in more danger in 2020. I, I, I shared that this this story with a friend of mine yesterday who's one of those people who believes that Donald Trump is not going to run for a second term. Mm. And he just wrote back to me, he goes, well, he could still change his mind. So, like, that's also true. <laughs> Anything is possible. Anything is possible. God. <laughs> Simone Pathé, she is the senior politics reporter for Roll Call. Follow her on Twitter at SFPathé. And read her good work at RollCall.com. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. I appreciate it. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press. Today we're going to take a very, very quick break. We'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is the Bill Press Show. My name is uh, not Bill Press. My name is Peter Ogburn. Uh, I didn't know I was going to be hosting the show today, and uh, here I am. Bill came in studio, and he had had sort of a scratchy voice, and we asked him, uh, how you doing? And he started trying to use sign language to talk to us. So we figured it was pretty bad. That's not great for the radio. That's not great. It's Bill. It's it's just one of his all-night raves. Yeah, yeah. As usual. (laughs) He came in with a pacifier in his mouth. That's it. Yeah, so so, uh, luckily, thankfully, we have some great guests who are joining us uh, for the entire show today. Uh, Former host of the show, future host of the show, uh, Evan McMorris-Santoro from Vice News. You can catch Vice News weeknights at 7.30 p.m. on HBO. Good to see you, man. I'm just up from last night still. <laughs> you were the same rate as I'm, Bill? I'm surprised Bill went down. Like, I mean, he, he was he was running the whole show. <laughs> this guy brings party drugs like you would not believe. Uh, well, Bill we know that. We've worked I mean, with him long enough. That I mean. old California Democratic Party chair stuff. That's the good stuff. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, I'm out of my mind. What's going on? So we're here. Uh, we're going to be hosting the show for this hour uh, without Bill. And, Bill, we hope you get your voice back soon. Uh, I want to play a, a, a couple of clips. This this story is is kind of fascinating to me. The mayor of Denver is in a little bit of hot water. And by a little bit of hot water, I mean he's in a lot of hot water because it turns out he has been sexually harassing uh, female cops. One female cop in particular, her name is Leslie Branch Wise. She came forward yesterday and she talked about the conversations that she had with the mayor of Denver, Colorado, this man by the name of Michael Hancock, by all accounts, has done a good job in Denver up until this point. And she actually came out and spoke about it yesterday. There were times that he said I look sexy and that he I would make it hard for him to concentrate. So she's a former member of his security team. Apparently, there are others. Apparently, this happened in 2012, and I don't want to say to his credit, but he came out and spoke about this yesterday. 
this was um, a mistake. I'm human. I make mistakes. I was too familiar. I was too casual. And those text exchanges were inappropriate and unprofessional. <laughs> Ray Rogers is in there running the board, rolling her eyes. I, I, I don't disagree with you. I'm sorry. His adjective choice of familiar and casual. <laughs> no. Yeah. If you ever need any more justification for this whole Me Too movement, like whether or not this is a prevalent thing in society, this man was flirting with the women around him who are carrying guns. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's privilege. Yeah, it's that's privilege. That yeah, is you obviously male don't privilege. have any fear at all. Yeah. <laughs> if you're like, there's a woman around me who's trained, who's trained to, she's trained to kill. use a gun. She's trained to kill. And she's carrying a gun. Yeah. I'm just gonna throw a little, throw a little. Hey, hey, hey Angel. Yeah, how's it looking? Yeah, I mean, it, it, first of all, I, I mean, it, it'll be fascinating to see if he survives this politically. Um, What's this guy's name? His name is uh, Michael Hancock. Michael Hancock. I really feel like I interviewed him recently at the mayor's conference. Really? Oh about, no. About um, I think I, I did a story about mayors and the and the White House and some of their difficulties. That's the guy. Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I will say I went un, unhit on. Okay, fair. Um, fair. But, yeah, look, I don't know if you can sur- survive this stuff, not survive this stuff. Uh, you know, I think it's pretty clear at this point that 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 this stuff is not uh, not tolerated any longer. Yeah. No, I mean, the fact that she came out and, and uh, like, put her name on it and talked about it and said what he had put in those texts and that he actually had to come out and, and address it I think is, is a big deal. Again, whether or not he survives it, we will see. You know, we've actually seen like a rash of this with mayors and uh, their security details. Yeah. The mayor of Nashville, Nashville. Tennessee. Yeah. Uh, that, that was a woman, and yeah. she had a consensual affair with It's a very different situation, obviously. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess, I mean. You grow very close to the people who are like in charge of your life. You get familiar with them. I guess. Uh, it's Peter Ogburn and Evan Morris Santoro. We're going to be filling in for this next hour. Stay tuned. Very, very quick break. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed, it is The Bill Press Show. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I am Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. Bill came in, tried to do the show, uh, but we sent him home before he cracked the mic because he just didn't have much of a voice, and that's just one of those things you're going to have to have if you're going to do a radio show. So here I am uh, filling in for Bill. Ray Rogers is running the board. It takes a village, folks. Good morning. A small village, indeed. It takes a small village. We all swept into, uh, into action and made it happen. But luckily, uh, we have some very, very smart people to help us carry this last hour out. Evan McMorris-Santoro, correspondent for Vice News, is here with us for the hour. Hello. Good to see you, man. I have a voice. You have a voice. This is the sound of it. This is... <laughs> I have I have a semblance of a voice. I have. I actually have kind of a cold, so like I have... Of raspy voice. There's something going on yeah. where everybody has been sick, I think, since like December. I've been sick since like December 23rd. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Should I go to a doctor? Well, it's like. Probably. Will I? Well, no. it's like one day, one day it's 86 degrees. Last week it was 86 right. degrees. That's right. And then the next day it's 30 degrees. That's right. Plants don't know what to do. No. I don't know what to do. No, it's confusing. I, yeah. Yeah. It's it's horrible. That's right. Ray, you, you haven't been touched by any illness. You're fine. No, I generally don't get sick. Have you ever? I never, ever, ever get sick. I, hardly I mean, except for ever when you know I sick. died last year. But other than oh, that, 
That was a big one. That made that up for a lifetime of other things. missed illnesses. That's right. That's right. That's right. You, you, you racked it up. You I, racked I, it up. I, I right. figured it finally it caught up with me. You saved mm-hmm. it up. <laughs> uh, God, we, we, we know kind of the day before where we want to go and talk about the show, but like just in the oh. days of these news cycles, right, whether you're Republican or Democrat or wherever you stand on, on, on these issues, like it's just an onslaught of news. Constantly, and I think a lot of people are still getting sort of getting getting situated with that. But I want to I want to play you a, a, a quick clip because uh, today is the day that Billy Graham is going to be lying in state, um, and so he's here in town. His body is here in town, and Congress is not going to be working. Mm-hmm. They are not going to be holding any votes. In fact, Bill Clinton actually talked about Billy Graham yesterday. Uh, I want to play this clip. Those of us who are Christians believe in a God of second chances, and the politicians need those more than anybody else. So you got to cut him a little slack. By the way, if anybody I mean believes in second chances, you got to give him credit for that. He's just like Bill. Just you know, put it out there, Bill. Those of us who are politicians need second chances. <laughs> yeah. Those of us who are politicians named Bill Clinton need like twelfth or fifteenth chances. Hypothetically speaking. <laughs> If there were to be a second chance, I certainly deserve one. My favorite thing that Billy Graham had was a bag of chances. <laughs> and I would dip in that bag and take chances out. Oh, my gosh. The right, man this, of wait, hidden is this, talent. Is this, is, this, is this going out? Are we on air? We're on air. Okay, I'm here for life. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so here's what's fascinating about this. Here's what's fascinating about this. He is the fourth private citizen to lie in state. Mm-hmm. The last person who who was lying in state uh, was Rosa Parks in 2005. Uh, before that, it was Ronald Reagan uh, who 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 laid in state. Now here's here's the interesting part of all this: Congress they're not getting any work done, mm-hmm. no work whatsoever. They did not shut down when Rosa Parks laid in state. They did not shut down when Ronald Reagan laid in state, and they are whispering amongst themselves that they had to shut down the government, or not shut down the government, but stop business and stop working because maybe finally they'll get a little bit more of a break on the whole gun thing. They don't have to do anything on the gun thing because, God, they can't do any work when when Billy Graham is lying in state. We are in an election year, and in an election year, the tendency uh, of politicians is to not do anything. This is, this is, this is the time in their careers when they're told by all their advisors that the worst thing you can do right now is something. Yeah. That, like, let's just start running for office. Let's just start talking about apple pie and fireworks and whatever else that people like, and let's not do anything that someone could then use against us. And obviously the gun issue is one of those issues where uh, there's a lot of confusion among Republicans about what exactly they are supposed to do right now. The polls are shifting Dramatically, rapidly towards the idea of wanting some sort of gun safety legislation while, you know, the NRA is still uh, very strongly digging in its heels. And the concern for Republicans, of course, is primary season. Yeah. But they also have the general election to worry about, too, because it's not a year that looks really good for them. So if you're them, you're like, okay, well, if I move away from the NRA, that could hurt me in the primary. If I move closer to it, it could hurt me in the general. Maybe we should just not do anything. Right. So, I mean, it really just depends on what voters are going to do with this information at the end of the year. It's kind of fascinating, right? Like, last year, which was not an election year, didn't get much done then either. Yeah, this is not exactly the 
the salad days of congressional action in the past few years. <laughs> right. Like since, since about like 2011. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. That's so it just, you know, it, they can get stuff done if they want to, but they'll find a reason to to shut down work if they can. I mean, I think that this gun issue is one of those issues where, I mean, they when they have talked about it, the leadership has said, uh, I mean, Paul Ryan was, was pretty clear he's not going to be getting on the train with uh, this, you know, sort of like, if you look at like 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 Rick Scott or even Marco Rubio, these guys in Florida, Republicans, strong conservatives, NRA supportive guys that are making moves away from what the NRA wants. That is not the message that we got from Paul Ryan when he did talk about it. Yeah. Obviously his caucuses, a lot of them don't want to do it, but it's easier to just not have a vote at all than it is to have one or talk about having one and have it go badly. This is an interesting sort of uh, a point that Republicans across the board seem to be using. Paul Ryan, I want that, I want to play that clip of Paul Ryan yesterday, where you know people were asking, "Are we going to get anything done? Is anything going to happen? Are we going to what are we going to do?" And he just sort of said, "Like there's a system. The system just broke down. There was a colossal breakdown, and we need to get to the bottom of this. How these breakdowns occurred." And last week, when CNN had their town hall, which I am designed to hate, the CNN town halls. I don't like these scene in town halls that they do when they have like a fake debate between Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders. But the town hall last week was remarkable, I thought. And they had Marco Rubio up on stage. Uh, they had Ted Deutsch. Uh, Rick Scott was not there. They had the sheriff. Um, and they had uh, uh, Bill Nelson was also on stage. And Jake Tapper was sort of the moderator. And Marco Rubio sort of said like, well, we can't go back to the weapons, uh, assault weapons ban because – there were so many loopholes and there were so many problems. Like, we can't go back to that. And the, the students just said, like, it's your job to fix these. Mm -hmm. You can't just say, well, this is the system and we can't improve the system. And the system that failed us is the one that we're stuck with. Frankly, throughout this whole gun debate uh, since the horrible shooting in Florida, we've had a lot of these moments in which people who are not political professionals have looked political professionals in the face and said, are you kidding me? Yeah. And this has actually been something that's happened quite often in on the campaign trail recently. I mean, a lot of there, there's some there's definitely some argument that that kind of conversation, that, that kind of talk that uh, that uh, Donald Trump did on the campaign trail in 2016 helped him to succeed. Obviously, his uh, his presidency has not reflected uh, his sort of desire. You know, he sort of claimed that he was going to be this anti-politician really so much as people expected. But. This is a very difficult this is a very difficult position for politicians to find themselves in because they have got talking points on talking points and talking points stacked up stacked up stacked up stacked up stacked up and then someone looks at them and says like look I actually hear what's coming out of your mouth right because like politicians don't think that people hear what's coming out of their mouth right. they, they they sort of say like they say you know I used to have this joke that like you know the a, a political answer is like well instead of answering your question I'm going to talk around it and then come back to Right here, yeah. and, like, and like, and like, that's the entire answer that they, they they won't do an answer to a question, and and it's sort of universal. I mean, they all have figured out how to oh, do. They that. all do it, but the thing is, what's happening now is you're seeing people are just not having it anymore. Like, I mean, they're a little bit more sophisticated about what the conversation sounds like. They understand their ways about how to motivate people and rally people too, which is like these these kids and their understanding of social media. And then when politicians say things like, "Well, we sure like to do something, but doing something." means that other things happen that we right. have to do things about then. And right. people say, well, why don't you do things about those things, too? Yeah. And these politicians are like, blah, blah. I mean, I mean, if you saw Marco Rubio, he was like, I guess I'll change my position yeah. a little bit. I mean, it's, you know, I think that a lot of this stuff is a bit on inertia, like a bit on autopilot, 
People, people haven't checked in with the gun debate in a long time. They haven't checked in with a lot of these debates in a long time. And when they find themselves in trying to sort of roll out their musty old talking points from three years ago, um, they just... They're, they're getting dunked they, on. They don't work anymore. They're getting dunked on by teenagers. Right. And the, I thought that the most telling interaction... That, that highlights that was at that town hall when that one, uh, the, the one student, uh, I'm blanking on his name, but he looked Mark he was standing right across from Mark Rubio, looking him in the eye. And he says, will you stop taking money from the NRA? And Rubio didn't, he, he did exactly what you just said. He found a way around and huh? he came back around to something else. The kid goes, no, 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 no. You didn't answer the question. Will you take money from the NRA? And Rubio again tried to, and he goes, you still haven't answered the question. And then the crowd got into it. And finally, they had to just like tell the crowd to calm down. And the kid just looked him in the eye and he goes, you have not answered the question. I mean, and Rubio was in a flop sweat. I know, but to be fair, like dunking on Marco Rubio is like dunking on like one of those like six foot Nerf baskets. <laughs> like fair. Three, totally fair. Three foot Nerf baskets. I mean, <laughs> yes. if we can all recall Chris Christie. As his campaign was like, sh- sh- like literally falling into the ocean yeah. with it, with his like last <laughs> gasp as he fell into the crevasse, just right. being like, Marco uh, Rubio is bad at this, and he was like, Marco Mark, Mark Rubio just like, just just dissembles on 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 the debate stage. So it's not exactly like, it's not exactly like Marco Rubio is the best at this. But it, what what is interesting is that. He like he he did show some signs of shifting, and Rick Scott, the the governor of Florida, is too. I mean, it's actually happening under the pressure from these people. The long term effects of that, who knows? Yeah. And you do have Republican Congress still, and and you know a lot of Republicans are not interested in in, in doing any of these changes that that, that people are talking about. Um, but the pressure sure seems, at least right now, the pressure seems like a very different kind of argument about pressure. If you think about after the after the Las Vegas shooting. Heinous, remarkably heinous shooting. Um, I was in Washington for that one too, and there was like zero conversation about having a conversation about anything. It was like this bump stock thing, and then that was a bar- barely mentioned and kind of we moved it, on. It was over by the end of the week. This feels this is a different level of pressure, yeah. and the NRA is not the ones who are driving the ship on this one. Yeah, uh, interesting study. Mixing from- all the metaphors possible. <laughs> See, I like it. I appreciate that. Uh, Quinnipiac University National Poll conducted after the mass shooting in Parkland, Florida shows that 51% of voters said the NRA supports policies that are bad for the United States. The last time that they did one of these polls was after Las Vegas, which was in uh, the, the early October, the 1st of October. 47% of respondents. So we've gone up four percentage points in that short period of time. And I also saw an interesting statistic. Um, Nate Silver from 538 was just sort of, he looked at a couple of different shootings, right, that we've had in, in, in recent years. And it typically follows the same pattern, right? We're done with them by a week at most. Mm-hmm. Like I remember after the Las Vegas shooting, you know, it had happened overnight. We did the show that morning. We talked about it for sure, but it wasn't the biggest story of the day, even though it was. Even though it was the biggest mass shooting in American history, right? Right. It wasn't the biggest story of the day. Right. I forget what the other stories were, but it wasn't the biggest story of the day. That's right. And then well, we were done with it. It it took that level of focus and activism, and uh, it it look this is this is how it actually works. I mean, this is the thing I keep telling people: this this is how it actually works. Like, if you're loud enough. And you keep talking enough, these guys will pay attention. Yeah, like they like these the guys. I mean, these folks, these yeah, sure. these politician folks will pay attention to you. Um, this is it's very hard for people to argue against a lot of the things that um, the 
uh, Parkland kids want after this shooting. I mean, you know, we've I, I've now heard from several NRA uh, advocates and officials this this sort of quip that they have about like, well, if you want to ban a mass killing machine, ban a spoon because people are dying of you know, and sure. like it's not that's like that probably plays really well in like an NRA message board, but it's just right. so lame, right? It to, to for that to, that to, that that to be your public facing message. It's it and and like I said, I, I don't know where this ends politically. I don't know what the right answer is. I'm not a solutions person. Fair. I I observe. Sure. And all I'm saying is like the observation right now is the NRA response is really lame, and the Parkland School uh, students is very innovative and new. yeah, and it resonates. I right. think. Uh, I want to ask you about a big story from yesterday. We weren't sure where Jared Kushner was going to end up with his clearance in the White House. Right? Mm-hmm. He's he's on this sort of interim security clearance. Uh, I read directly from Politico. Presidential son-in-law and advisor Jared Kushner has had his security clearance downgraded, a move that will prevent him from viewing many of the sensitive documents to which he once had unfettered access. Uh, Ray, I want to play that clip of Senator Richard Blumenthal yesterday, because this was earlier in the day before we knew what was going to happen to Jared Kushner. Blumenthal just kind of said, this is why we're concerned about it. My main concern right now is that there are an unknown number of high-level White House officials with continued access to the nation's secrets when they may have very damaging secrets in their own backgrounds that could subject them to blackmail or worse. So I saw a little bit of this back and forth yesterday about how that 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 wouldn't be possible. That That's not a thing. And then all of a sudden, the Washington Post has a story where four different countries have said, or a report shows that like they are actually trying to compromise Jared Kushner because he has a massive amount of debt. He has dubious financial ties. And he also has a top secret security clearance in the friggin' White House. And so like that is kind of what Blumenthal was saying. Uh, China, uh, Israel, United Arab Emirates, and Mexico have all tried to figure out how they're going to compromise the fancy God, I want to say it all did it at one meeting, like yeah, right. at one table. Like I want to see that, like all of them together. <laughs> Look, this is one of the greatest leaks of all time because, like, this is a you know what's happening right now is sort of an idea that you have the Jared Ivanka side of the Trump administration versus sort of like the John Kelly side of the Trump administration. They don't want Jared to lose his security clearance. He loses his security clearance, and obviously somebody from the Kelly side like is like, "Hey, did you notice? Did you like like Rick, you're really serious about this? Yeah, like I mean." I actually always, I mean, I'm a bit of a cynic when it comes to this stuff, and I sort of thought that this security clearance stuff was like a little silly, a lot of it, but I've been talking to people who had top security clearance in other administrations uh, over the past couple of days, and they're like, look, you really, like, this is very, very serious stuff. Like, this is very serious stuff. You can't do the job without the clearance, and you and you can't get the clearance unless you're really not somebody that they think that can, can be compromised. I mean, the Rob Porter story, we did a story on it for Vice, on my show at Vice. 7.30 p.m. on HBO. Weeknights. Weeknights. Right. Folks. Stay tuned. It's long Game of Thrones previews just before and after. <laughs> nice. Um, anyway, but uh, but uh, we did a show, and you know, uh, we talked to a former National Security uh, Council staff person for the Obama administration. Not a politician, a uh, just a NATSEC guy. Um, and, you know, his concern with the Rob Porter case, of course, Rob Porter being the former staff secretary of the White House who left after it was revealed that there were many allegations of uh, domestic violence against him. 
Um, his concern was obviously the domestic violence is bad, but that's not what he was worried about. What he's worried about is that the domestic violence is something that he could be that Rob Porter could have been blackmailed over. Yeah, and I and I literally was like, come on, and he's like, no, that's like that that's that's the stuff that they're concerned about. So you have the so you have this story in the Washington Post about the idea of Jared Kushner, who uh, has a bunch of businesses, has a bunch of debt, has a bunch of things to worry about, and. Whether or not he could have been compromised, whether or not that's possible, right? Whether or not Rob Porter could have been, no one knows. But when they're doing security clearances, what they're looking for is the potential for pressure points. That's why, you know, in the old days when this country was much more bigoted uh, towards LGBT people, uh, being a member of that community was something that people didn't want people with clearance to have. Sure, sure, sure. Right? So... What we're talking about is like this is exactly what loses you a security clearance. So when you talk about the idea of whether or not Jared Kushner should have it or shouldn't have it or how to get it or didn't get it, this is the kind of thing that anybody who does security clearance vetting for our country would say, nope, that's can't have it because yeah. because of that, because of the possibility of right. it. And that's a very serious, serious thing. And this guy because this guy has had it. For a long time since the beginning of the administration, right? Again, you can't say that he's been compromised or it's likely that he would have been. It's not that's not clear at all. And that's also but, kind but, of well, not you the can't point. say exactly what this is exactly what security clearance vetting is for. Yeah. And we haven't had a lot of it in this administration up until now. I remember uh in two thousand fourteen when uh Barack Obama, the the scandal du jour, and I, I, I'm trying not to spend my time saying, like, well, Barack Obama did this, and Trump is doing this, and that's why it's bad. But you remember when Barack Obama got on the elevator and there was an armed contractor that was on the elevator with him who had an arrest record, and he had a gun on him, and they didn't know it at the time? Uh, And people lost their minds. People I mean, it was back when we Pretty dumb. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was pretty pretty dumb. But that's one of the things that people had said. Like, we don't, like, we know he's an armed, like, Secret Service vetted him, kind of. Mm Mm-hmm. But he had a record, and he had a gun on his person, and he was in the elevator with the with the president of the United States. And heaven forbid, someone got to this guy, right? But like that was a real issue, and now the the White House is filled with guys like this. I mean the uh, the the I mean look the the, the, the writing Rob- process is a is like a risk. It's like a risk analysis, basically. Yeah. It's like how risky are you? I mean, look, I I know people who've. Uh, lost it because you know they smoked weed, they lied about it, whatever. But like, there is it, it's a risk analysis system, and if you are viewed as too risky to see things that we don't want other people to see, they won't give you the clearance to see it. Yeah, and so that's I mean, and so this Washington Post story sort of like that explains very clearly what risk looks like. Yeah, do I think that Jared Kushner is gonna like fall prey to uh, a Mexican intelligence service blackmail scheme? I don't know. Yeah, but like it's but people thought he might be. It's possible. Sure, that's what the that's what the vetters said. Yeah, or I mean, look, look, we live in a time where politics are completely insane. Yeah, it's like I said earlier. I don't I don't care what side of the political aisle you are on. Right, like this is not something that we are used to saying. And like, could that possibly happen? Yeah. Well, it's mostly it's the issue of, um, you know. The length of these uh, of these um, uh, these temporary security clearances, coupled with the fact that what comes back is things that would not let you get one. That's it. Like yeah. you can get a temporary one because the idea is it takes a lot of time to do all this vetting. They give you a temporary one, and then you know usually you clear your way through. 
But the fact is, we've just seen it now another person, you know, Jared, at least reportedly potential, um, potential, you know, pressure points. And that's that's a big deal. Yeah. And there are, and there are more, by the way, in the White House. It's not just about Jared Kushner. Um, White House is getting ready for the Politico piece. White House aides working on the highest level interim clearance at the top secret slash CSI level, SCI level, not CSI. No, SCI, which SCI. is for, uh, oh, man. Secure, it's like containment. Special like, Victims Unit. No, no, no. You, that's, <laughs> Sorry. The information you have to get, yeah, clang, clang. Right, that's right, that's, right, that's right. how you know you have it. No, no, no. You have to go into, uh, that's the kind of information that's so secret, mm. you have to go into a special room <coughs> to look at it called Sensitive, a SCIF. compartmented information. There's the big brain. Boom. There's the big brain. Throw a Google on it. Yeah, throw a Google on it. Not sick. Not sick. Knows facts. And yes, yes. Actually bring something to the table. Correct. Um. Uh, but they were informed uh, in a memo sent on Friday that their clearances would be downgraded to the secret level, according to three people with knowledge of the situation. So, like, when I, when I heard the Rob Porter story, I was like, I have no idea who Rob Porter is. And then I saw who he was. I was like, oh, yeah, that's the guy that hands Trump all of his papers oh. on his desk. I, I knew it by, by, by his face. So, like, this is a guy that's, like, the last guy to see everything that the president gets. Mm-hmm. So, like... I kind of get the outrage and the little freak out over it. I totally get it. I mean, like I said, the story that we did at the show was it was a guy who was outraged because he's a security guy. And the security was like, this is this is what it looks like to be a compromised person. To have a dark secret in your past you don't want anybody to know about. And have somebody come up and say, well, we won't tell that secret about you if you just tell us. What you saw today at work, right, 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 right like, right. and 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 it's not like this is exactly what security vetting is about. That's exactly what it's for. It, it's it's for preventing that the potential of that to happen. All right, so I I, I this is sort of a curveball, but I, I haven't talked about this story yet. And I really wanted to talk about it today. So uh, they have cut and slashed the budget at uh, HUD, Housing and Urban uh, Department. The, the Ben Carson is the secretary there. How's so, urban development? How's urban, urban development? Did you need to Google it? Sorry. Thank you. That's right. Um, and so the New York Times has a story about how Ben Carson, late last year, went and bought a $31,000 dining room set for his office. Now, they are slashing HUD's programs for the homeless, the elderly, the poor. Uh, and he went... It's spent $31,000 on a new dining room set. Now, what would that look like if you were to spend $31,000 on a new dining room set? Well, the New York Times has the details. A custom hardwood table, chairs, and a hutch. Ooh, a hutch. A hutch. Hutch. I'm, I'm shocked there's not a credenza in there. But a hutch. Hutch, I feel like, is a word I've only heard from when you win one on, like, prices Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I would like to know if there are any murals involved. Remember, he had that one of him and Jesus in his house in Balmer. A, pa- a painting of Ben Carson and Jesus. Um, <coughs> according to the New York Times, top agency staff members filed a whistleblower complaint charging Mr. Carson's wife, Candy Carson, with pressuring department officials to find money for the expensive de- redecorations to his office, even if it meant <coughs> circumventing the law. That's from the New York Times. I see. Gotta have that hutch. 
I gotta have that hunch. I don't care how we get it. That's a must. This is so okay. So, okay, so just to be clear, well, yeah. let's just summarize. So sure. we have an EPA director uh, who can't fly in coach because it's a security risk, That's quote right. unquote, because somebody yelled at him or something about it. And we have a housing and urban development chair uh, chief who would who would rather skirt the law. To then not to get a thirty to one thousand dollar dining room set in their offices. Got to have that hutch. Got to have that hutch. The so, thing is, like I've seen the HUD building, by the way. Like, yeah. I mean, like so, if you're not familiar with Washington, uh, there is a lot of departments that were built sort of in the sixties and seventies that are just sort of like very ugly, sort of brutalist architecture buildings. Like that is the this is this is it's not the best foot forward yeah. of American architecture. How's uh, HHS is one of those. HUD is one of those. Um, I don't know why you'd want to have a fancy dinner party in the HUD office. <laughs> I mean, sure, like having a fancy dinner party in like a bus station, right, right, right. right. Like just sort of like the look of, I mean, the look of it. My my favorite uh, line from this, uh, Raffy Williams, a HUD spokesman, was actually reached and gave a comment about this, and he says, "quote." <laughs> Secretary Carson did not know that the table had been purchased, but does not believe the cost was too steep and does not intend to return it, end quote. So there you go. I didn't know anything about this, but I'm keeping it. (laughs) The more you know. Finders keepers. Look, I mean, this has been, this this has plagued this administration since the beginning. You know, I mean, Tom Price with the spending on travel, apparently we're talking about with the spending on travel. Um... Obviously, you know Steve Mnuchin uh, with some of the stuff that's happened with him and 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 his wife yeah. out there. Like a lot of this is optics. Okay, thirty one thousand dollars. Don't go running around thinking this is why you know you can't get that uh, housing program that you want. That's not why right. you, you can't get the housing program that you want because Republican Congress won't pass it. Or the Trump administration, or the Trump administration doesn't want to keep it around. Right. Thirty one thousand dollars is not breaking anybody's bank. Right. Okay. However, but this is indicative of. What's funny is these guys, like, they talk about how much they hate government. They hate government. They hate government. Hate, 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 hate government. Right in the swamp. And as soon as they get into it, look at all those great perks we can get from the government. It's pretty sweet, right? It's like everybody, like, goes and they put on that Matthew Lesko question mark (laughs) outfit. (laughs) And they go running around like, look at all this free money from the government. Like, it's, it's, it's completely remarkable. And the thing is, if it was... Reversed, we you know it, like when Democrats did stuff like this, they got in trouble all the time for th- for the you know if if people recall Nancy Pelosi when she was Speaker of the House, the Speaker of the House gave her the privilege of having a military plane fly her back and forth through her district in San Francisco. Uh, she uh, used that privilege, and part of that privilege like allowed her to. Um, I think have have a cocktail or two on the plane, which I've been on Air Force One. Cocktails are on the plane. And when that came out, there was a huge, huge pandemonium argument about, like, how dare she? This thing that's, that she is actually granted by law. Yeah. This is, this is a potentially a story about circumventing yeah. the law. And like, admittedly, just out for out a open. table. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're going to have more to talk about with Evan Morris Santoro from Vice News. And uh, joining us in the next segment will be Emily Atkin from The New Republic talking about the EPA. We mentioned Scott Pruitt. We'll get into it a little bit with her. So stay tuned. It's the Bill Press Show. Peter Ogbert sitting in for Bill Press today. We'll be right back. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. 
Bill Press Show. Hi, everybody. My name is uh, clearly not Bill Press. My name is Peter Ogburn. I'm sitting in for Bill today. Uh, as we mentioned a couple times throughout the show, Bill was here. He was here like, you know, two hours ago. We were going to start the show, and uh, he didn't have much of a voice. So, so here I am. Uh, luckily, I have some big brains here with me for the rest of the show. Evan McMorris-Santoro, our friend from Vice News, which you can watch weeknight 7.30 p.m. on HBO. And Emily Atkin is here, staff writer at The New Republic. Hi, Emily. Hi. I hope my brain is big enough to fill the gap. I always say that whenever I host, it's not uh, – what I always do is, is we have some wonderful uh, smart people surrounding an empty, vacuous hole. Not unlike the way that a donut works. <laughs> There's just nothing in the middle, and it just surrounds myself. I just surround myself with smart people who can help carry the show. But it's still fantastic. Donuts are fantastic. Donuts are wonderful, <laughs> despite the fact that there is a serious lack of content in the middle. They are still enjoyable and wonderful. I'm like the sprinkles. Yeah, hell yeah. She's the substantive, yeah. cakey I'll goodness. The cakey goodness. I'll yeah. take it. <laughs> Uh, it's good to see you both. I believe the last time you both were here was when you were hosting the show. That's correct. So you guys are old friends. That's right. That was our first time meeting, actually. It was here live on on the radio. Yeah. It was. We had. I think we have Twittered before, but that was the first time. Nice. In person. Yeah. Nice. I want to ask you, first of all, you were at CPAC this past weekend, right? You, you spent some time there. You were covering it or looking at it and I was. watching so, in. You know, I normally cover science and the environment and stuff, but our D.C. office, most of the New Republic is based in New York. And so there's only a couple of us at the D.C. office, and so my editor looked at me, and he was like, guess who's going to CPAC? It's you. And I was like, okay. Oh, man. <laughs> sure. I used to go to CPAC, uh, and I told this story yesterday, but I, I went to CPAC four years ago, five years ago, four years ago maybe, and I just got ossified drunk. I just, I, I like, I, I crashed a Breitbart party and just went in and just, <laughs> just completely got hammered. And I got cornered by a raving lunatic. That man is now the governor of Kentucky. Matt Bevin? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my well, gosh. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> what? True story. True story. What did he do that was- I think someone told him that I was one of his constituents, and this was when he was in that weird race. Uh, he was challenging Mitch McConnell. For the primary, yeah. Yeah. And so he just came over to me, and I just... I, I, uh, I, I have... Not the most lucid memories of the encounter, <laughs> but I do remember. I was just like, "Oh, that's that, that's who this guy is," and he thought I was one of his constituents. He kept talking. He thought that the party was for him. All right, yeah. Yes. Know, that, that's kind of that's kind of thing CPAC is. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> just Peter Ogburn drunk, thinking he's talking to maybe the governor of Kentucky. We're not sure. Yeah. No, no, it was definitely it's definitely him. okay. okay it right, was definitely sure. Matt Bevin. It was <laughs> definitely Matt. I knew that because I knew that he was in the news at the time for when he was running against Mitch McConnell. And he introduced himself to you and said, "Hi, I'm Matt Bevin. Hi, I'm future Matt governor. Bevin. Uh, yeah, you're yeah. going to remember this. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. Anyway. All right. What did you What did you see? It. What was the total? What was the vibe at CPAC? Because like I, 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 we've talked about CPAC for years here on the show, and it's sort of funny because I'm old enough to remember when Ron Paul would win the straw poll all the time, right? For like, who do you want to be president? The next, I don't know if they still do that when there's a Republican president, but it was always Ron Paul that was Rand Paul, and it was that was sort of like that Tea Party crowd. Like, what was what was the vibe there this year? So this was my first ever CPAC. I managed to be a reporter in D.C. for over four years and never attend a CPAC, and that changed. Congratulations. Um, so I don't have much to compare it to, but what, I, what I'll say is that it seemed to be a hodgepodge of people who thought completely differently on a bunch of 
different issues. There were people who, you know, the first day I went around and I, I talked to people about guns, as as I think a lot of reporters did, and you had the whole range of people who were saying, you know, who were totally down with the crisis actor conspiracy, the kids in the Parkland shooting um, weren't actually there, to people who said, you know, I back I back a moderate form of gun control. Um, obviously, a lot of a lot of kids, uh, a lot of weird um, weird racism from people, um, but also a lot of like total cultural acceptance of other people. There were some trans women who were demonstrating. Uh, I think I believe they did it last year too. Um, who were saying, you know, I'm trans, I'm conservative, I'm part of your team, I'm looking wow. for, I'm looking for acceptance. I saw one woman come up to them, high five them, and say, you have more friends than you think. Five minutes later, uh, Ben Shapiro delivered the keynote where he said something along the lines of, and if you, that's not a, like, that's not a woman, that's a man, you know, just, just spewed some transphobic stuff. Um, so it was, it was all over the map for me, and um, I spoke to way more teenagers than I than I thought I would. Yeah, well, that's CPAC. CPAC is it's pretty much designed was designed to bring young people to Washington to get them all fired up about being conservatives. Uh, I've been to a lot of CPACs, and I think this one was interesting about this one is, uh, I mean, you're right. Like the people have different opinions about a lot of sort of like on the in the margin stuff, but for the most part. In a really big way, it was like a pro-Trump event, which was not yeah. completely the way CPAC had been not even that long ago. Like it's just like a couple of years ago, I think it was Trump didn't even go to CPAC or something, and then he, and then and then he because he was afraid he was gonna get walked out on. Now he went. Um, that was one of the. By the it way, was a, it was it was a republic. I mean, it was it was a Trump fest in a way that surprised me. As someone who's been going to CPAC for a long time, I think that I had um, I ran into a guy. Uh, this guy was like in his twenties, who was sort of like your classic movement conservative type of guy. Like he's in classic CPAC attendee, you know. Like I'm 25, I'm wearing a suit, I want to be at the National Harbor early in the morning, <laughs> I want to go eat breakfast and watch the Hugh Hewitt show get taped or whatever. Like this guy was like really down for the cause, right? He's really into it, and um, he was like, you know, I have always wanted to like this. I mean, it's like one of those things that happens to reporters sometimes you get really lucky. I did not. This guy's found me in the hallway. I did not find him. I'm not that good a reporter. But he's basically like, um, my dream of my whole life has been to go to CPAC. Since I was a little kid, I really always wanted to go to CPAC. And now I got here, and there's nothing for me here. That oh. Trump has taken over the entire thing. We got this Le Pen speaking, which to me is like the final nail in the coffin for the kind of conservatism that I believe in. Uh, I mean, this guy's like, you know, like a Bush-type conservative. I mean, you know, like a, a reg I mean, a very conservative person, but he was literally just sort of like, he went because there was a because you know the other thing about CPAC is sort of like uh, a lot of like secondary events happen all around it because it's such a big sort of gravitational pull. So he had gone down to the CPAC area because there was another event going on that he wanted to go to. So he went to that and then was like, "I'm just going to go to CPAC because like I mean I've always wanted to do it. And it's right up the street." And he went and he was just like despondent. He was like sad about it. Um, and that was I think really interesting. That to me was the biggest <clears throat> excuse me takeaway from CPAC when I was there was. Um, this kid that was just like I, or this guy that was just like I had really want that this this is not the Republican Party or the CPAC or the conservative movement that I expected to be a part of when I was a teenager. That's fascinating. That's fascinating to me because, like, as I mentioned, whenever Rand Paul and Ron Paul would do so well in these straw polls, right? Like, establishment mm -hmm. Republicans were kind of freaking out. 
But at least, you know, you can point to some brand of conservatism in the Paul politics, right? Well, they game the system. Like, what happened was yeah. the winning the straw poll was briefly a thing that was a big deal for people who wanted to run for president in the Republican Party. So, like, for example— Mitt Romney, who was not seen as conservative enough because he was the governor of Massachusetts and created Obamacare, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, he when he was running for president in 2008, he made a big deal about winning the CPAC straw poll. He's like, look at me. I'm conservative. Yeah. I'm a conservative guy. Um, and this was like a good this, this was like a, a litmus test. But then after that, the polls just kept sort of like bringing busloads of their supporters in to sort of juice the straw poll. But on stage, there'd be a lot of conversation about different ideas in um, in CPAC. I mean, in conservative movement, how to tackle different issues. You'd have libertarianism. You'd have sort of like uh, you know uh, super capitalism. You'd have you know definitely always the fringy. But always, always the racist stuff would always be there. Some of that would always be there. Um, but it was a conversation kind of about what would the, what the movement is doing next. Granted, I've only gone in years when there was sort of more of an open election for Republicans. But now, with it being heading into the Trump re-election, uh, Trump is president, it was a Trump event. Yeah. It was just that, I mean, yeah. the, with a couple of outliers or a couple of people who said bad things about Trump, um, but it was a Trump event. And it honestly felt like, so I think maybe, maybe partially because of that, that it was kind of low energy. Like yeah. CPAC is, can, can be pretty fire. I mean, it's a bunch of young people; they're super stoked, and this was sort of like a little bit. I don't know if you got that sense. Well, sort of. And what I was going to say is, I think you were lucky to find that dude who would openly admit to you that that it wasn't what he expected, and that the party wasn't what he had identified with anymore. Because, yes, I would agree it was low energy. I, I spoke to a lot of people who were walking around being like, I don't know about this, or I don't know about that. But I, I didn't find one person who wouldn't say, you know, who would say, uh, I actually don't like what's happening at CPAC where the Republican Party is shifting in a way that I don't like. It was mostly a lot of like, well, like optimism, like stuff couched, displeasure couched in optimism and then an unwillingness to admit, I think, the reality of the situation. I mean, I went to a one of those outside panels that was called How to Win Women. Right. And. Within that panel, nobody would admit that the Republican Party is hemorrhaging women or has a problem with women. It was just a panel about how great women are and how to uh, appeal to them in a way that doesn't invoke identity politics. But even afterwards, I went to speak with the one of the women who was running the, the panel, and I just flat out asked her. I was like, so are you doing it? Did CPAC ask you to do this because you guys have a problem with women? And she was like, no, like I don't think that that's mm. the case, blah, blah, blah. So I, I don't know. I don't know if it's denial that I felt at CPAC or just an unwillingness to outwardly be like, oh, God, what's happening? Uh, you read about science um, and environmental issues. You have a great piece, Scott Pruitt versus the Pope. I want to ask you about that in just a second. But you also had a, another CPAC piece about uh, guns because mm. CPAC happened uh, not long after the shooting in Parkland, Florida. How did they handle that, and what what was the vibe that you heard at CPAC from these conservatives about gun safety, gun control? Well, the piece that I wrote is called The CPAC Kids Are All Right on Guns because I (laughs) decided that I was only going to search out uh, teens or people who were close to teens. I felt that that since we had been hearing from teenage victims and talking about how powerful uh, the teenage voice was and how they were the next generation of— uh, gun control advocacy that it would be a good idea to talk to the next generation of their opponents, yeah, totally, who are the 19-year-olds at CPAC. Um, the 19 and 
I found a, quite a bit of 19-year-olds, um, weirdly enough. And it was weird to go up to kids and be like, hi, are you a teenager? <laughs> Hello, teens. <laughs> are you, are you, who here is a teen? I'm, looking, I'm just looking for teens. <laughs> just get weirdly enough, you, me, wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't be the only person doing oh, that at CPAC. Oh, Sorry. Oh, no. Or at Netroots. Or, or at, Netroots at the Democratic or anywhere, National frankly. Convention. Yeah, sorry, or sorry, the Republican yeah. National to Convention. Be clear. Yeah. It's a ugly, disgusting business, folks. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Um, what, and and what I, I, the takeaway from the piece is, I definitely found a, I definitely found a few uh, very pro NRA kids, but mo- the vast majority of the nineteen, early twenty year olds I spoke to were very much open to a debate in which they talk about, um, in which they'll talk about um, lo- um, increasing the age limit on buying certain guns, banning bump stocks, increasing background checks. They're not. They're not for against any all the things that the NRA are against. I would say that at this moment, a lot of those nineteen-year-olds are not sort of gung ho. But I think a lot of it is because they're not. A lot of them aren't gun owners, yeah. so maybe that's part of it as well. Um, but I, they were like really willing to be like the NRA is not really saying what I think. Yeah, the, I, I amazing, probably met the NRA, like was all over that place. I probably yeah, all over the place. Yeah. The NRA was probably the most paraphernalia that I saw. Totally. All, all over the thing. But yeah, I would say that the vast majority, I probably spoke to a dozen, a dozen teens, um, were, were not uh, very, they didn't, their political identity did not uh, line up with the, with the NRA. Um, but at the same time, I did speak to one very smart 19 year old who said to me, listen, because I said, wow, you know, it sounds like you're really willing to compromise on a lot of these issues. He goes, yeah, but I'm 19, and um, social science shows that people get more entrenched in their viewpoints and unwilling to compromise when they get older. So you might see some optimism right now in the debate, but uh, I think as we get older, uh, it's probably going to be the same stuff. As and I, I get like, Damn. fed shovels full of garbage <laughs> for the next couple of years, I'll change. That is like... The saddest. That's like that's like one of those God. sci-fi movies, you know, like with that. What's that one where like, like, like the thing in your in, in your hand changes color and you die when you're like 21 or whatever. Oh yeah, sure, sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That science fiction movie. You, get, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about? I have, nope. It's a science fiction story, that, but, this, but this is like this kid being like, "Well, I only have four moons left until <laughs> the, the hardening, and then like I'm gonna become like just some fucking automaton." I'm sorry, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, I'm just gonna become some. I'm just gonna become some automaton. The kids. That's very sad. But the, the kids were just so they were so like transparently like they understood what was BS. You know, they they knew what the reality of like their future was gonna be. They saw the stickers that. Someone was <laughs> that someone was handing out that said "I heart CO 2 You know, like the, <laughs> the you know owning libs with your yeah. like love for pollution, and they were like, "Isn't this stupid?" Yeah, you know. God. So the, even they knew that that was dumb. But, but do you feel like I mean? So I mean, I mean, this kid aside with this idea of you know that I'm gonna you know that I'm one day I'm just gonna become a you know a straight hardy photo like 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 everyone else. Well, he said this he hoped is, he didn't. Right. Okay. Interesting. But 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 with this kid aside. Do you feel like, um, do you think that energy might have been like surprising to the NRA? Because it, it felt like to me that they felt like they were like a really home crowd audience when they were there, right? I mean, Dana Lash gave this speech that was just like this crazy speech that said, you know, the media loves mass shootings. The NRA spokeswoman, Wayne LaPierre, gave his speech in which he sort of like attacked the FBI, a lot of things that Trump wanted. And then you're finding that in the crowd there are kids who are like maybe a little bit more skeptical of what the NRA has to say. I would say that the NRA probably didn't 
didn't get a feeling of that because they would have had to go up to those kids and talk to them. You know, if they're the ones giving speeches and they're the ones, you know, doing these events, they're going to be, like I said before, it's not like these kids were really willing to go up and be like, screw the NRA and this isn't what I feel. They're they're sort of like these private conversations where they're like, yeah, well, I think maybe that's not what what I'm into at this moment. But they're not yelling about it at CPAC. I'd be surprised if the, did the NRA have like a guy that was going around surveying people? Like, what's your feeling about the NRA? I don't think that that happened. But that's really interesting to think about that. Yeah. Because the idea that like they're still talking to you, they're not listening. That may explain a lot why their politics are not going so well right now. Did you see the the part where um, the NRA like VP gave Ajit Par a, a gun on stage yeah, for like yeah, for like yeah. all his great work repealing? They have that a history neutrality. of doing this. They, yeah, they, 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 do. they, they give away guns on the stage of CPAC. I didn't know that. Yeah, that was yeah. a new thing for me. And they give it to like I mean like one of the greatest photos ever taken is of, is, is just Mitch McConnell. They give yeah. it to Mitch McConnell, and he's like. I mean, Mr. Connell. I mean, this is not a guy who goes out shooting. No, this is not. This is a this this is a sip in a bourbon kind of guy. Right. And he's just like holding this giant. They give him this like giant sort of, I mean, you know, flintlocky looking rifle. They give it to all of them. Yeah, I was it's I was weird, laughing. Right? I was laughing. I was like, oh, the FCC, FCC chairman gets a Kentucky long gun. Like, thank you for your political service. Yeah. Like, it's so it should look like work. a duck hunt blaster. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that would make a lot more FCC. sense. Because FCC. That would make a lot more sense. Huh? All right, uh, we, we, you should be a consultant for the NRA. <laughs> we only have a couple minutes left. But I, I really wanted to ask you about this. Your headline uh, really grabbed me. Scott Pruitt versus the Pope of all people. Now, the Pope has come out, and he really has embraced uh, this this sort of evangelical environmentalism, right? Like, he's sort of put himself out there as being a defender of... of uh, of, of of these causes, and Scott Pruitt clearly is not. So what's the deal? What's going on with these two? Well, I did this piece because Scott Pruitt has sort of been giving interviews recently justifying his ideology for the environment, repealing environmental regulations, making it a little easier for yeah. companies to extract oil and gas, um, because, and his justification for it is is within his faith that God gave us these natural resources he granted us, you know, dominion over over uh, the earth, and we should use these resources to benefit ourselves and to feed the world is, is basically his his uh, spiel. And that is what I found sort of like a fringe version of theology. Uh, and I contrasted it with the Pope because in 2015, I don't, I don't know if you remember, he released his climate change encyclical. Yeah. And it was a huge deal. And I was covering climate change at the time, just scrambling, getting ready for what's this encyclical. I know it's going to be huge. And it leaked a couple days early. And myself and my uh, colleague at the time, Jack Jenkins, we like got a translated version from an Italian speaker. And we found not only that the Pope was presenting this very moral case for tackling climate change and keeping resources, natural resources in the ground, he was directly rejecting another faith talking point that said that God granted us dominion to use whatever we wanted. God granted us the the right as humans, as the highest soul beings, to exploit and extract whatever we want. The Pope, that's what the purpose of the encyclical was. It was to, because it's a form of Catholic teaching, right? And the teaching is that your dominion does not equal domination. It equals it equals stewardship and care, and when with this climate change issue, it's even more so. So I did this piece to contrast uh, Pruitt's Baptist, you know, admittedly not Catholic faith, um, and then I spoke to some 
theologists who were like, no one thinks that anywhere except the U.S. BT dubs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, cool. To the faith, the faith-based <laughs> community, obviously in this country, we, we we consider it like part of the conservative movement, and usually takes the side of sure, you know, big yeah. business and things like that. Uh, and it, it's the environment. You're saying that across the world, that's not necessarily the case. At least that's what um, a couple theologians told me, um, and one of the. Uh, one of the guys I spoke to, Reverend uh, Dave Bookless, he's he's in Europe, and he was like, in Europe, you know, we don't talk about this here. It's just very like southern corners of the U.S. where they're actually debating uh, whether dominion means domination. Um, and even in the U.S., you'll see evangelical groups um, that are environmentally minded. It's not even in the conservative Southern Baptist denomination that Prude is from. It's not it's not black and white uh, whether or not they they are in line with the Pope or in line with what Pruitt has sort of said his ideology is. Good stuff. Go read her work at newrepublic.com. That'll do it for today's show. Uh, Thanks to Evan McMorris-Santoro from Vice News. You can watch uh, 7.30 p.m. weeknights on HBO. Follow him on Twitter at EvanMCS. You can follow Emily Atkin on Twitter at M-O-R-W-E-E. E-E. I read her good work at newrepublic.com. That's it. We'll be back tomorrow, folks. Thanks. the Bill Press Show.